So Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23 is a pivotal passage on marriage. Uh, If marriage is going to be held in honor, then we have to take heed, those who are husbands, those who are wives, have to take heed to these words. Uh, This is one of the key passages that you will find in the New Testament on marriage. And Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all, not just among married couples, but among every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage is to be put on a pedestal and held in honor. And the only way that can happen is that husbands and wives have to fulfill their roles as given in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. But as important as these verses are on the subject of marriage, another relationship trumps it. Uh, When my wife and I uh, have the privilege of doing premarital counseling, uh, one of the passages we like to share with the couple that's planning on getting married is Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. And when you look at that passage, it's clear that God has designed marriage for companionship. God has designed marriage to be the highest of human relationships. And God has designed marriage to be an intimate relationship. That is clear from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Marriage is to be the highest of human relationship. It surpasses and is more important and has a priority over the relationship with parents, with siblings, with friends, and you name it. The marriage relationship has that priority. But there is a relationship more significant than the marriage relationship, and that's the relationship that Paul has been talking about in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Uh, Several times, Paul has alluded to this relationship. In talking to the wives and in talking to the husband, he's talked about a special relationship. And it's a relationship that, as we've gone through this passage, might have seemed like it's not as significant as it should be, but it is a relationship that is Crucial. It is important. The relationship that I'm talking about is the relationship between Christ and the church. That relationship, it should be at the forefront of our minds. And I want to make sure that we're not guilty of having gone through this passage as many times as we have, that we don't allow the relationship between Christ and the church to play second fiddle. Uh, we, We don't want to have the mindset or the understanding that the marriage relationship is the relationship that is stressed in the Bible. There's another relationship, and that's the relationship between Christ and the church. And so what I want to do this Sunday and next Sunday is just make sure that we keep Christ and the church before us. I know sometimes that might not scratch where you're itching, but sometimes we don't know where we really are itching. God does. God knows what is best for us. 
And God says in this passage that this relationship between Christ and the church is not only crucial for marriages, but it is crucial for all of life. If I'm going to live a life that honors God and pleases God, I must grab hold of this truth of Christ and the church. When I talk about Christ in the church, I'm not talking about Christ in a physical building. Fairview. That's not what Paul is talking about in these verses. So don't conjure up in your mind the physical building of Fairview and think that's what it's talking about. I'm not even talking about the relationship between Christ and the local church. I'm talking about Christ's relationship with the universal church, which we call the body of Christ. In the New Testament, the writers speak of a universal church. They also speak of a local church. And the universal church began on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts 2, is made up of every genuine believer in Jesus Christ. When a person repents of his sins and put his faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, at that moment, not only is that person saved, but that person is placed into this body called the body of Christ, which we are referring to as the church. But the Bible also talks about a local church. And a local church is to be a manifestation of the universal church in particular areas. And so there are local churches all over the United States and in other parts of the world. When you read your Bible, Corinth was a local church. There was a local church at Philippi, etc. Fairview is a local church. But I want to warn you, I want to keep before you that you can be a member of a local church and go straight to hell. You can be a member of a local church and spend eternity in the lake of fire. When all is said and done, the issue is not where you're a member of Fairview. The issue is where you're a member of the body of Christ, the universal church. And so you need to make sure uh, you might have been able to pass through all the hoops and take all the steps in order to be a member of a local church. But that is no guarantee that you are a member of the universal church. You have to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation. So my prayer, my, my hope, my desire for everyone under the sound of my voice that you won't delude yourself into thinking, I'm on the membership role of Fairview, so I'm going to heaven. No, you better make sure that you're a member of the body of Christ, that you are genuinely saved. And if you are genuinely saved, God has placed you into the body of Christ. You are part of that universal church. And so as we consider this subject, Christ in the church, I want to explore three relationships that our text speaks of. Three relationships that basically unfold this important important truth of Christ in the church. And the first relationship is the relationship between Christ 
and the church. It's the relationship that is pointed out in verses 31 and 32. So I won't be going sequentially, starting with verse 22 all the way to verse 33. I'm going to be jumping around. I'm going to be picking out verses that speak of Christ in the church. And when you look at verses 31 and 32, it speaks in a very general way of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's speaking in a very general way. It's pointing out to the readers of this text that there exists a bond. There exists a connection. There exists a link between Christ and the church. And what Paul speaks of in this verse is really echoed in other verses in the New Testament. The New Testament writers are convinced that there is a relationship between Christ and the church. They might not use the terminology that is used here, but it's there. And so when we look at John 15, that relationship is pictured as the relationship between the vine, Jesus Christ, and the branches, believers. In John chapter 10, we read of the relationship between the shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the sheep are the flock. When we come to Colossians chapter 1, the picture, the imagery is of the head and the body. And you also find that in Ephesians. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks of the cornerstone and the building. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about the stone and the living stones. All of those are graphic ways to say that there is a relationship, a true connection, a true link between the Lord Jesus Christ and the universal church. And God wants us to realize that and wants us to understand that because it impacts and changes everything when it comes to our walk with God. But when we come to Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul does not use any of those images. Instead, Paul, in wanting to express the relationship between Christ and the church, uses a marriage verse. A marriage verse. Of all things, Paul says, I want my readers, I want Christians to understand there is a special link, bond, relationship between Christ and the church. And Paul says, the best way for me to illustrate that and to bring it out is to use a marriage verse. And the marriage verse that he uses is Genesis 2.24. Look at verses 31 and 32, and let me just reread those verses for you. Verse 31, Paul says, For this cause, and he's quoting Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he said, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so Paul chose the institution of marriage to portray the relationship between Christ and the universal 
church. When we look at Genesis 2.24, it is the key verse, so to speak, on marriage. It talks about leaving and cleaving and weaving. It's clear that it's talking about the human institution of marriage. Jesus referred to it, and when he referred to it, he referred to it as the human institution of marriage. Even Paul, when he quotes it, he's really talking about the human institution of marriage, but Paul shocks us and tells us that in reality, he's speaking about a great mystery. And so this this relationship between Christ and the church is a mysterious relationship. In the word of Paul, it's a great mystery. It's something that was once hidden, but is now made known. That is, when we read Genesis 2.24, if that's the only book that we read, and even if all we read was the Old Testament, we would have thought when we read Genesis 2.24, This is talking about the human institution of marriage. It's talking about how a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two are to become one flesh. That that would be our understanding of Genesis 2.24. It's talking about human marriage. And even when we come to the New Testament, when Jesus refers to it, it's talking about human marriage, the institution. But Paul shocks us. He says, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm not talking about the relationship between a man and a woman. He says, I'm talking a mystery, something that was previously hidden and now made known. And so Paul says, this relationship is a mysterious relationship. And then he goes on to say it's an intimate relationship. Because Paul says very clearly that he is speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I hope that influences you the next time you read Genesis 2.24, the next time you hear it and study it. Yes, it's talking about principles related to the institution of human marriage, but don't forget that it points to a more significant relationship, that it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And when Paul and the writers of Scripture, when they want to portray that relationship, they use different pictures, but Paul says, I want to use marriage. I want to use marriage because marriage in the eyes of God is a one flesh relationship. And so what Paul is telling us, that the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the universal church, every individual who has genuinely been saved, it's a one flesh relationship. It is a marriage. Basically, we have become one with Jesus Christ. And so yes, it's mysterious, but yes, it is an intimate relationship. The church is not loosely 
attached to Jesus Christ. I don't know what you feel like the relationship is between you and Christ, or between Fairview and Christ, or between the members of the body of Christ and Christ is. But I want you to understand, it's an intimate relationship. It's not a distant relationship. Christ is not millions of miles away from this group of individuals that he calls the church. There's an intimacy. There is a closeness. There is a oneness. There is a bond between believers, the church, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, the only way I can portray it is to use marriage as an illustration. But when we went through 1 John, I think John tries to portray this relationship also. John uses words. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, let me just read the word. I, I, I want you to hear how John expresses the relationship between believers and Christ, believers and God. John says, by this, that is by love for one another, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. That statement is a profound statement because it's saying that the the, the body of Christ, the church, the corporate church is in God. But the other thing that it says is that God is in the corporate church. Now, I don't know about you, that in my, I can fathom one thing being in something else or that thing being in this. But for both to be true, this is a profound statement. For the church to be in God and God to be in church, that is the closest of relationships that will ever exist between two entities. We are in God. God is in us. And so John says, I want you to understand that you have an intimate relationship with the Lord and Jesus Christ. And this is not only true of the universal church, I would say it's true of the local church. And more particularly, it's true of individual believers who are members of local churches. So I don't want you to think that Christ just has a close, intimate relationship with the church, universal church. But if you're a genuine believer, I want you to know that Christ has an intimate, close relationship with you. If you think you're deserving in that, you're foolish. If that doesn't excite you, then you don't understand the profound idea of what that means. That the creator of heaven and earth has an intimate personal relationship with you and me, James says we're nothing more than a mist, nothing more than a vapor, nothing more than a speck. But we're so meaningful, we're so important to the Lord Jesus Christ that we have an intimate relationship with him. So close is that relationship that it matters how we live as Christians. Oh, we can sing, order my steps. But we need to be singing that 
when we're getting ready to choose sin. When we're being tempted with sin, that's when we need to be singing, order my steps. That's when we need to be obeying God. It's easy to be singing it when we're here in the worship service. But in the throes of temptation, when temptation is knocking at the door and soliciting you to do evil, that's when you need to be able to rely upon God and need to keep before you that when you are involved in a particular sin, your relationship with Christ is so intimate that you're involving him. Think about that the next time you choose to sin. You're not doing that in isolation. You're doing that as a member of the body of Christ. You are attaching Christ to that particular sin. And if you think I'm making that up just for dramatic effect, read 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be that I would take a member of Christ, me, and join it to a harlot to be involved in a sin. Paul said, perish the thought, may that never be. And so, church, I want us to understand that there is a relationship between Christ and the church. It's a mysterious relationship, but it's also an intimate relationship. And it reminds us that we are an integral part. That the church, the universal church, matters to Christ. He loves the universal church. It's an integral part of his life. The second relationship that I want us to consider uh, in this key passage on marriage is the relationship of Christ to the church. And I hope you heard me correctly. We just looked at the relationship of Christ between Christ and the church, but now we want to look at the relationship of Christ to the church. The Lord Jesus Christ plays a role in regards to the universal church. So we're not speaking of the existence of the relationship, but rather what we're highlighting is Christ's relationship to the church. And we're going to see it's a threefold relationship. He fulfills a threefold role. And the first role is that Christ is the Lord and the Savior of the church. That's his role. He's the Lord of the church, and he's also the Savior of the church. This is what Paul makes clear in verse 23. Uh, Look at that verse with me and let me read it uh, so that it might be etched in your mind. When Paul is telling wives, submit to your husband, that part you remember, that part you know. Chapter 5, verse 22 But Paul goes on in verse 23 to explain why a wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And Paul says in verse 23, for or because the husband is the head of the wife. And I am not going to 
touch that with a, uh, uh, no, at this point in time, I've touched it, spoke on it, I'm going to leave it alone. But what I want to highlight, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So there it is. Paul says that Christ is the head of the church. He occupies a place of authority, a place of rule. He is the supreme one when it comes to the universal church. And so, yes, there exists this relationship, but don't get it wrong. Don't get it twisted. There is one in this relationship who is the head. There is one in this relationship who's in charge. There's one who is the authority. Paul says it point blank. Christ is the head of the church, the universal church. And he doesn't just say it here. If you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 22, Paul writes that God gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church. That's what God did with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and he ascended back to heaven. God gave Christ as head over not a few things, not something, but over all things, including the church. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says we are to grow up. Now, the church, the local church, is to mature, is to grow. The universal church is to be growing up in all respects unto him who is the head. And who is the head? Even Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says those exact words. He is also the head of the church. Do I need to say anything more? He's the head. He's the ruler. He's the leader. He's the Lord of the church. He's the head. And that means he's master and Lord of the universal church. And by way of implication, he's master and head of the local church. He's master and head of Fairview Heights Baptist Church. And if he's not, we're not the kind of church that Jesus Christ is building. The senior pastor is not the head of the church. Deacons and deaconesses are not the head of the church. Congregation is not the head of the church. The head of the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So we take our directives from him. We, we don't do what we want to do. We, we don't do what we believe we should do. We do what the head tells us to do. And so many times we're talking about ordering our steps and we don't want to live the way that God wants us to live. God says, I'll order your steps. Here's what you are to do. Here's what you are to do. Here's how you're to talk. Here's how you're to walk. Now, go ahead and do it by my grace and my enablement. But he's the head of the church. Technically, he's the senior pastor. We come up with these titles. It doesn't matter if you're in an elder-led church or whatever. He's the head of the church. And so what should be our responsibility, what should be our role, our model ought to be, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. 
That's what we want done. Not an individual's will, but the will of our God, the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. And so Paul says clearly that Christ is the head of the church, but he also says that Christ is the Savior of the church. He says it this way, being the Savior of the body. And that term Savior comes from the verb, I save. And oftentimes it's used of God, but it's also used of Christ. God saves. Christ saves. But no human being has the ability to save anyone from sin. That's God's role. That's Christ's role. Christ is the Savior of the church. And that's not a novel idea. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, when an angel pronounced the birth of Christ. When we read that Christmas story in Luke 2, when the angels uh, proclaim that message to the shepherds in the field, it says, for today in the city of Bethlehem, has been born for you. Not a man, not an individual, but a Savior. And who is this Savior? Christ the Lord. That that was the angelic announcement. That was the good news. That was the good tiding. A Savior has been born. Christ the Lord. And, And oh, what a message that needs to be heard today. There is a Savior, and we need to tell men and women, boys and girls, in the many, many different contexts in which God is placed, that there is a Savior, and that Savior is Christ the Lord. Peter told the Sanhedrin that the resurrected Christ was the Savior. In Acts 5.31, he said, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a Savior. Didn't just exalt him when Christ ascended back to heaven as a prince, but as a savior. He's at the right hand of God as a savior. Paul told the Jews in Acts 13.23 that God has brought them a savior. That's good news. He's brought them a savior. Someone who can save them from their trespasses and their sins. And that Savior is none other than Jesus. And we could explore this idea when it says that he's the Savior of the church. It means he bought the church with his own blood, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He bought the church with his own blood. First, 2 Timothy 1.10 says that he abolished death That's a part of his saving. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Paul writes to those Christians, says, we're looking for the blessed appearance of our great God and Savior. Paul said, that's who we're looking for. As we're saying no to worldliness and uh, ungodly desires as we're living sensibly, righteously, 
in this present age. That is, we're, we're, our steps are ordered by his word. As we're doing that, we're also looking. Now, and who are we looking for? We're not looking for a better job. We're not looking for a better uh, place to live in. We're looking for a savior. Our great God and savior is how Paul put it. And it's through this savior that believers have received the Holy Spirit. And Peter wraps it up by saying, we're to grow. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, Christ Jesus. We, my friends, recognize that when it comes to the church, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the Savior of the church. The Savior of the church, him, in him alone. Him, in him alone. There is salvation in none other. Salvation is not in your good works. Paul said in Titus 3, 5, our good works are nothing but filthy rags. We're not saved by our good works And the thing that's interesting, he's writing that to believers. He's saying, believers, you ain't saved by the good works you do. So what? You teach Sunday school. So what? You work in the nursery. So what? You're a deacon. You're a pastor. That doesn't save you. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by being a, quote, good person. You're not saved because of your mama or your daddy or your brother or your sister. You're not saved because you give to the church. You're, you're saved. There's only one Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way you can be saved is by putting your faith in him and him alone for salvation, repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ in the gospel. He is the Savior of the church. And we need to proclaim that message. Our world is confused. They think the Savior of the world, Muhammad, that the Savior of the world is some kind of religion. The Savior, according to the word of God, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the church. And the ones who know that best are those who are the members of the universal church because it's been by his blood that they have been saved, by his death on the cross that they have been forgiven all of their sins, that they have been redeemed from their worthless way of life. Christ is the Lord and Savior of the church. You know what? Christ is also the lover of the church. He dearly loves the universal church. And I would go so far as to say that he dearly loves the universal church that meets in a particular location, like 1215 Marlboro Avenue. He dearly loves, and let me go a step further, each and every one of you, if you are saved, he dearly loves you.
But that's a sermon for another time and for another Sunday. What I want to impress upon our hearts is Christ in the church. That is a truth that we need to grab hold of. That is a truth that is not just helpful when it comes to the marriage relationship, but it's a truth that impacts how we live day in and day out. We have people who are lonely. We have people who are discouraged. We have people who feel disconnected. If you're part of the universal church, there's someone who deeply cares about you. There's someone who deeply desires for you to realize that you are the object of his affection and his love. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know life can be hard. I know life can be difficult. But I want you to understand that this truth, Christ and the church, it'll sustain you when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This truth, Christ and the church, will, will keep you humble when you're on the mountaintop of victory in your walk with the Lord. Never, ever forget the wonderful truth that Paul is presenting to us in this text about Christ and the church. There's more that he wants to say, but this is enough for us to grab hold of and allow God to use in our lives to cause us to be different and cause us to be people who please him. Let's pray together.